blind, lame and paralysed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps out ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is a Sabbath, it is not lawful you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore the Jews started persecuting Jesus, because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. May the Lord Look at the, the third part of that mostly, what Jesus stood for. Um, Matthew, Mark and Luke focus a lot on what Jesus did and said and rarely spend a lot of time tapping the deeper issues and questions about what Jesus did stood for. And so I'm going to give a brief introduction to, to the Gospel of John. Chances are you know this already, but it, it's helped me in my preparation at least. <clears throat> Another significant difference between John and the other three Gospels is the fact the way that John includes a lot more references to individuals um, rather than big crowds. And these one-to-one -one conversations are given more uh, prominence that, that meetings with crowds which seem to dominate Matthew, Mark and Luke. Another good reason to choose the Gospel of John for a series about people who Jesus met. But we also need to remember that the Gospel of John was not written so that his believers might start believing that Jesus is the Son of God. It was written that they might go on believing it. So it's mostly written for mature believers to help them keep up with their faith and maintain a good relationship with God. And that's what we're doing today. John himself was an interesting man. Um, he was a fisherman. Uh, cousin of Jesus and part of the inner circle along with Peter and James. He is one of Jesus' closest friends. Indeed, he referred to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved in order to deflect attention away from himself by not actually giving his name. And it was John who sat next to Jesus at the, the Last Supper. Jesus wanted his good friend to be by his side for his final meal. And move on a few days, and you'll remember that it was when Jesus said um, to his mother, here is your son, indicating John, um, implying that he uh, would be able to look after her when Jesus was no longer there. And finally, by way of introduction, 
Um, the Gospel of John includes no parables, only seven miracles, one of which we're looking at today. In fact, John doesn't even call them miracles, he calls them signs. A sign, of course, always points to something beyond itself. And that's what we'll be doing today. We're looking beyond a bit. And so we come to the sign itself. Now most of us will be familiar with what uh, Sarah read earlier. And this sign happened at Bethesda near the Sheep Gate. It still exists, sort of. Now, I've got a bit of an apology for you here. Uh, my friend Vic, who does my PowerPoints for me, um, I, I sent him, I asked him, he did exactly as I asked. This is a sheep gate, but just, behind, just the other side of the sheep gate is the fall of Bethesda, where this miracle happened. And Vic does such a lot for me, I didn't have the nerve to, to email him back a couple of days ago asking him to, to change the photo. But if you look on Google, Google Images, you'll see that the, the, the actual form of Bethesda is still there, just, just the other side of that brick wall. And so a man aged at least 38 years old is healed by Jesus. Now I don't understand miracles, and I don't know how this happened, but if it's in the Bible, then it's good enough for me. This passage teaches us that Jesus went out of his way to heal the outcasts of the day. This passage teaches us that Jesus spoke with authority. And this passage teaches us that Jesus was not afraid to be controversial by healing on the Sabbath. But I guess you're already familiar with things like that. So this morning, I want to look at some of the less obvious things that we can draw out of this account, but I'm going to be looking beyond. The first thing I noticed of interest was in verse 3. Here, a great number of disabled people used to love the blind, the lame, the paralysed. It seems to me that the place was packed with people who needed to be healed, but apparently only one was. Is life always fair, I ask myself, even for Christians? What about the person who might have been there 37 years? Or the youngsters who had that whole life in front of them? Or the young mum who was desperate to get back to her children but couldn't do so? Why is it, I ask myself, that God heals some and not others? Now clearly, this has been on our mind as a church a lot since May. We've asked ourselves that question many times. We've prayed intensely for a miracle for Jonathan, and for a while it seemed to be happening, but not in the end. Has that ever been your experience too? Firstly, if this question is on your mind, then I know something of what you're going through. Just a couple of years ago, I lost a brother-in-law in a tragic back garden accident. And what's more, he worked for the open air mission in the Midlands. So here is a man in Birmingham and other areas who is a far better Christian witness than I will ever be, taken from us in an awful way when he was very fit and well. It certainly didn't seem fair to us, especially as it was three days before.
before he would have met his latest granddaughter. Or our family losing one of my sisters, aged 49 years and one day, to breast cancer, leaving three children behind. It certainly didn't seem fair to us. And if this is you, then we need to remember that the Bible never says that the Christian life will be fair. Sadly, we're not immune to problems and tragedies. I'm sure that some churches will preach a victorious, a happy ever after Christian life, but you won't find that in the Bible. But what you will find in the Bible is lots of people complaining about the unfairness of life. So if this is you, then you're in good company. As you know, there are 150 psalms in Psalms. Now, I've never counted how many, but it wouldn't surprise me if nearly half of them are complaining about the unfairness of life. And to make matters worse, many of these psalms are written by the great King David himself. Now, David, as you know, was special in God's eyes, but not so special that life was always good for him. And if David, this special king, can rail against the unfairness of life, then so can we. In Romsey Baptist, once a month, on a Sunday afternoon at four o'clock, we have what we call a traditional service, like a service it used to be a generation ago, followed by a very nice traditional tea, very popular too, and numbers are going up no end. Two or three years ago, I was asked to preach on Psalm 73. Now, if I asked anybody here to quote Psalm 73, I'd be gobsmacked if anybody would know a single word from I certainly did. It's not one of those go-to psalms. In fact, it's full of complaints and about how life is unfair. If I remember rightly, I counted 17 reasons why um, life wasn't fair for the writer of that psalm. And what's more, they were good reasons. So it wasn't just the psalmist having a bad day. Now, I don't want to be accused of giving the wrong impression of the Christian life. Become a Christian today and your life will be miserable. No, I'm trying not to say that. What I am trying to be accused of is preaching the whole gospel. So I don't think it's a sin to ask the question, is life always fair, even for a Christian? But, of course, there's more to it than that. There's God's sovereignty. And we mentioned this um, a few moments ago. To be honest, I think that God's sovereignty is rather a large subject. And I guess that many trees have been cut down in order to understand it. But I'll try to do it justice. I'm not going to be theological either. That's just not my style. The truth is, despite preparing for this morning, I don't really understand God's sovereignty, but that's no reason not to cover it. Firstly, <clears throat> what I think God's sovereignty doesn't mean. I'd like to suggest it doesn't mean that we become lazy Christians. We use it as an excuse and become lazy to accept whatever is going on. So we see a needy person and say, oh, that must be God's will. I see a sovereignty, I don't need to help them. Somebody becomes ill. Oh, that must be God's will that he is sovereign, so I don't need to pray for them or take them to the doctor. Or, or money is needed for something. Oh, God's sovereign. 
He'll, he'll provide the money. I don't have to do anything. Yes, as I, as I hope to show, God is sovereign, but we are his, his hands, his feet, his muscles, his voice, his money, if you like. It's the same at work or in this church. Yes, there are managers at work and deacons in this church, those responsible where the buck stops, but these, these managers and deacons can't do it all by themselves. They need us foot soldiers to play our part. So I don't think that God's sovereignty means that we can become lazy. So, if that's what it does to me, what does it mean? I always think that the first part of church, when the whole congregation is in together, is really important. But truth be told, sometimes I struggle to find something relevant to what's going to be in the sermon and, and helpful to the youngsters. But not today. For once, I knew exactly what to do with the blinded um, um, on Oliver and the um, course, etc. <clears throat> I don't think I've ever said this before, but if you forget everything else, try to remember what we did earlier. In preparation for today, I looked up several definitions um, of God's sovereignty, but nothing was as clear and simple as what we we were looking at earlier, not being able to see, but trusting the one who can see. You might remember, I spent most of my life as a comprehensive school teacher in, in schools in Kent and Hampshire. In one of my teaching jobs, one of my colleagues was completely blind and had been so since a teenager. She was remarkable, and I'm still in touch with her. She had a guide dog, but often we would be out together in places where neither of us had ever been before. She would take my arm and accompany me along corridors, up and down stairs, into lifts, across rough ground, in cars, public transport, everywhere. Not being able to see, but trusting the one who can see. But it's difficult to trust God's sovereignty, isn't it? For a start, we have a hard time trying to understand God's infinite mind with our finite mind. I'm sure you'll know these verses. Let me read a couple of verses to you from Isaiah 55. I'm reading verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Perhaps that begins to put our importance into context somewhat. I'm sure that there are many very intelligent people here this morning, and we're all grateful for that. But that's nothing compared to God. In fact, I'm not even sure the word intelligence is the right word to use for God, but I'm sure that you know what I mean. That's why I've chosen the final song this morning to be, Who Can Know the Mind of Our Creator? I stand in awe of you. So when we say in exasperation, God, what are you up to? I think it's a fair question. Sheila and I are going through this in a much more minor way than, than many of you are going through. But we think it's time to downsize. So we, we're going to move house. And we put our house on the market three weeks ago and things are not going according to plan. God. What are you up to? I do think, I can see quite a few smiles there. I, I think I know, you know what I'm talking about. But 
But God's abilities are so much greater than ours that we wouldn't be able to understand it even if we tried. A possible explanation um, is very difficult to have. It'd be like asking like a child, asking someone like Paul, how does music work? Well, a proper explanation would involve notes and notation and keys and time signatures and, and years of practice and, and lots more. It's a small example, but it might help. In the Bible, God is described as all-knowing, all-powerful and always present. Understand that? Me neither. In the Bible, God is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Understand that? Me neither. In the Bible, God allows his one only son to die an unjust death. Really understand that? Me neither. I guess there's more we don't understand than do. Now, I don't often launch into poetry, but if the following helps just one person here this morning, it will be worth it. You've probably heard of a, a Dutch Christian called Corrie Ten Boom. She wrote many books. The one I can remember is called The Hiding Place. Now, Corrie and her family hid Jews in their home until they were betrayed and became prisoners of war in, in the Second World War. She suffered unimaginable and horrific things in, in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And she saw thousands of people die, including her father and her sister. Corrie survived the death count and eventually became a much sought-after speaker. She struggled with God's sovereignty. Who can blame her? I know that I would. But she would often use one particular poem. I don't know if she wrote it or somebody else wrote it or not. I just don't know. One particular poem to help people understand her Christian view of, um, of God's sovereignty. Now it's written in slightly old-fashioned English, but I'm going to read it as it is. Um, it's all to do with um, weaving a tapestry. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colours, he worketh steadily. Often he reads sorrow, and I, in foolish pride, forgets he sees the upper and I the under. Not until the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skilful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can do. He gives his very best to those who need the choice to him. I wonder, does this ring true? Do you struggle to see what God is doing? Have you struggled to believe that God could ever weave anything beautiful out of an awful situation? There's no sin in that. There can be a, a temptation for others to try to help in such situations by trying to give encouragement and speculating at what beautiful thing it is that God is doing. We sometimes like to suggest hopeful outcomes and to write our own endings to God's story. I may be wrong, but I'm not so sure that's helpful because we don't always know what God is doing. Even if sometimes we think we do. I don't think that's the answer. The answer is to know and trust that the weaver, if you like, to know and trust that he is indeed making something beautiful. 
And to continue the image, I think God calls us to live almost exclusively on the underside of the tapestry of life. Our hope on that side is a trust that there is a beautiful side being created by a God who knows and loves and cares. Not being able to see, but trusting the one who can see. So instead of telling a couple how their marital struggles are a part of God's grander, grander purpose, instead of telling someone how their heartache will soon subside, instead of telling someone how their failure will eventually be made glorious, I think perhaps we need to remind people of who God is, what he is like as a God who can be trusted, how he understands their pain and has experienced it himself on the cross. That's a God we can trust. That's a, a weaver who gives hope from the underside of the tapestry. Not being able to see, but trusting the one who can see. I think it's God's sovereignty is quite a serious subject. It would be very easy for someone to say in a, a slightly um, superficial way, yes, of course I trust God 100% all the time. Don't you? Only to find that they've had a very sheltered life. Maybe they're all, all that family of believers. There seems to be no premature death or relationship breakdown, no health or employment, money or, or housing issues. Now, I'm not knocking such people. They clearly had a very good life. But those of us, and I guess that's most people here, including myself, who have experienced such issues, then I can think of no better way than to describe it as God's sovereignty through British tea. I know it's not a theological definition, but it works. Not, oh yes, of course I'll praise God, but more, I will praise God, even though I don't see what he's up to. Sovereignty through gritted teeth. Time is going, but I couldn't help noticing the reaction of the Jews to the healing. Let me remind you of what it says in verse 10. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is a Sabbath. The law forbids you. The, the law forbids you to carry uh, your mat. They weren't particularly interested in the healing at all. They were more concerned about being nitpicking and keeping the religious law than in sharing the good news of the man's healing. The lesson for us is clear. We need to get our priorities right. Clearly, a sermon itself. But it's difficult, isn't it, when there are so many legitimate calls on our time. This comes first. The church or work, or family. I don't know, it's not always easy, but God, I think, should always come first. That's why um, I asked for the extra verse to be read this morning. Really, our passage ended at verse 15, but let me remind you of verse 16, we say already. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. So Jesus did the right thing by healing the man. And the results? Fame, glory and thanks? No. He was persecuted. Even when we get our priorities right, it doesn't always mean that everything is hunky-dory. In fact, sometimes right the opposite. That's no reason not to get our priorities right. Remember the, the final beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then the final thing I noticed was found in verse 13. The man who was healed had no idea who Jesus was, for he had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Remarkable, isn't it? 
Jesus has just done something amazing, but he didn't stay around to take the credit, like I'm sure I would have. And I wonder if that might be true of some people here. You've been without a minister for a while, and for all I know, there could be people here who do their bit quietly, under the radar, the unsung heroes, never getting notice. Perhaps it's admin or, or IT or youngsters or, or welcoming people or, or visiting professionals, whatever it is. You'd rather have people than be up the front. Let me remind you that your role is far more important than any visiting preacher, especially as you probably do it all the time, week in, week out. In fact, you're following Jesus' example, perhaps without even realising it. He slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now, I don't know many people here, but I bet most of you can think who this applies to. Thank you to those people. Well done to you. You are following in Jesus' footsteps. So, let's summarise where we've been. We've reminded ourselves of how different the Gospel of John is compared with the other Gospels. John preferred to use the word signs instead of miracles. And what were the signs that we covered? Is life always fair, even for a Christian? Well, no, not even for believers. But trusting in God's sovereignty helps, because we're not always able to see it, but we can trust the one who can see. Remember the All Age talk earlier. We continue by noticing how wrong the reaction of the Jews was. They didn't get their priorities right, a clear lesson for us all. And then we finish it by noticing how Jesus humbly slipped away into the crowd. I'm sure that applies to people here, quietly getting on with things and imitating Christ in doing so. Thank you for listening. Thank you.